Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Coles Wicker is back. We are doing part two of my 23 and under list in the NBA. The top 25 players, 23 and under as a quick refresher on the way that this thing goes. First and foremost, 1996 birthdays and later. If you were born December 31st, 1995 or earlier, you are not eligible for this list. There has to be some sort of arbitrary cutoff point. That's the one I've chosen every year that I've done this list. Number two, that means that guys like Carl Anthony Towns, Kristaps Porzingis, Nikola Jokic, Kyle Kuzma, Andrew Wiggins, those guys, not eligible for this thing. So this is my list. This is not Cole's list. Cole, how are you doing, man? We just recorded one of these. It's still Wednesday, uh, August 21st, <laughs> meaning I'm three days before my wedding. Uh, feeling feeling better after the last podcast. I'm less stressed than I was. Talking to you tends to have that influence on me. There we go. I'm uh, mirroring the environment here. Very laissez-faire weather we're having right now. Finally took a turn for the worst i wouldn't say extreme badly weather or extreme bad weather jesus badly um but it's not sunny anymore and it's been sunny for like a month straight so a little bit more drummed down and this is i'm weirdly amped for this podcast like you said we just recorded for about an hour and 40 minutes on part one i'm, I'm ready to get this going man yeah uh i'm this was the hardest group of players to list out in rank i thought like i didn't feel as much concern about getting 17 to 25 right because i felt like there was less difference between those players and that it was more just you know you have this guy on the list that's what's most important this group is also very clumped together but for different reasons where a lot of them have like just super high-end skills like for instance like miles turner is in this part of the this list and miles turner is probably one of the seven best defenders in the nba now you could probably make a case that he's one of the five best defenders in the nba now um d'angelo russell made an all-star game this year uh jason tatum is here and he's just nowhere near those guys yet in terms of actual on-court ability but you also have to have them because this list is based off of future value and based off of where these guys are going in the future. And it's hard. I think it's really hard to kind of parse through this group in terms of which ones you'd rather have long term. Yeah, I do not really envy you here, especially as we get to the latter part of this list. I mean, I have strong leans or stronger leans at the top. There's like four guys I believe in, which we can eventually get to. But just like sorting through some of these players is just tremendously difficult. And I think it's more nuanced. And hopefully like the, the broad takeaway for me and the most important part of these discussions is the actual arguments being made. It's not necessarily like the ranking exactly. If you have one guy ahead of the other, it doesn't necessarily mean right. you're married to that choice. You know what I mean? It's more about the discussion we're having that, that should provide some value. Right. That's what I think, too. Everyone's going to have very drastically different opinions on these guys. Uh, everyone's going to feel differently on Lowry Markinen versus Miles Turner, probably. Uh, you know, w- where you fall on that might differ, but I think it's just worth having the conversation on uh, where they are in comparison to one another, in comparison to John Collins, in comparison to DeAndre Ayton and other big guys that will feature. So, Let's uh, let's start by cracking the white claw that I have next to me first and foremost, because uh, while uh, while it is a less stressful podcast than the last one we recorded, you know, let's uh, let's let's de-stress it a little bit more. So 
Lowry Markinen is number 16 for us. I think that you might have kind of let the cat out of the bag on that one on the last podcast. So I uh, let's, it's just totally fine. It's, you know, laid back attitude here, of course. But <laughs> Lowry is interesting, if only because he brings such staggering uh, high end skills in terms of his shooting ability, in terms of like, honestly, he's a good shot creator now as well, even in year two. But also the defense and like the defensive position and how you work around him defensively long term, I think presents some interesting ways that Chicago is going to have to build around him and some interesting discussion points in terms of how a team in general will build around him. Maybe it's not Chicago long term. Exactly right. I think it's a team building argument. I I wouldn't say necessarily against Lowry fully. I think there's still a lot of utility here, clearly. But for me, the argument in the draft, even as a prospect, it was always going to be how do we value a player like this? Because we're talking about someone with a extreme skill as far as, you know, off the catch shooting, pick and pop diversity, can shoot a little bit off the dribble, can shoot off screens as a big, which is one of the most rare skills you can find in the game. There just aren't very many bigs who can come off a pin down or like a curl and, sh- and shoot a jumper. That's just very hard as far as coordination for a seven-footer. So we're talking about very extreme strengths here. And we're also talking about someone who's probably going to be valued at their fullest amount and probably even overvalued based on that skill. I think that's 100% right. I think it's worth bringing up the positives first, if only to be like a, you know, positive focusing podcast, right? <laughs> um, Lowry Markinen, I think you can make a case. He is the best shooting 22-year-old seven-footer in NBA history. Uh, Dirk, it took him just like a little bit longer to develop as like a an elite level shooter than I think people remember. Lowry, if he keeps going along this trajectory of continuing to get better and better and better as a shooter, I don't think that like Dirk's overall value is in play necessarily because I think that Dirk, uh, Dirk's basketball IQ is just ridiculously higher and uh, he was just stronger than Lowry is. He was bigger. He was a lot more capable of playing the five in spurts than I think Lowry probably will be defensively. He's a much better rebounder uh, than Markinen was as well, in my opinion. But I think that in terms of just like being able to score, uh, Lowry has potential to approximate things that Dirk used to do. I don't think that's completely unfair to say. I I do think the level of shot maker that Dirk ultimately got to is like literally one of probably the best of all time for a big. I I would say actually unequivocally the best of all time for a big like mid range. And you just can't bother Dirk's shot. Like it, that's the thing. The high release shoot, point he, is a good point. That's what I'm saying. Like his mechanics and like his ability to shoot off balance shots, like off of one foot. I don't think we can understate just how unguardable that was. And that, to yeah. reach that level is an all time coordination, you know, touch. And I think Larry has some of it, and, that, and that's rare to have even some of Dirk. Because again, I think Dirk is one of the most underrated players historically, just as far as degree contextualizing how good he was at what he was good at. If, if Larry can approximate that, I mean, I would certainly have him too low if I made this list, because that's just, I mean, if anything in that stratosphere of outcome range is just tremendous. Well, he's not going to be like the mid-post creator that Dirk was. Like, Dirk had the ability to be an offense unto himself as a mid-post yes. creator. Lowry is not going to be that. But what Lowry does do pretty well is that he can run off of screens, knock down shots off the catch. He can run around screens, pump fake, take two dribbles, knock down a runner floater shot. Uh, he can 
come around a screen even like occasionally not all the time but like occasionally can take a ball screen action and go around a ball screen and you know maybe knock down a shot maybe try and get all the way to the basket like there's just a lot of diversity in terms of offensive skill set here for Lowry that I think often really does go underrated like his offensive ability really is just it's unique in today's NBA, I think. Like, there, there is not really anyone who can do what Lowry does in today's NBA. When you get into the nuance of how he gets his shots and how yeah. versatile his shot is and how diverse his shot is, more importantly, I think that's where he's missed. I mean, everybody knows about the shooting, but you have to break down shooting into different components, different parts of utility. And I think that's where Lowry stands out. I agree, though. I, I don't view Lowry as, like, an engine of an offense. I think, like, with Dirk, he was, like, the only guy we've ever seen like that who was an actual engine. And that's how you can separate someone, like, you can say a playmaking five, like someone like Jokic is an engine, whereas Horford, great playmaker, but he's never we're going to be able to score well enough and force double teams well enough to be an engine. You know what I mean? So from that standpoint, there's delineation and there's, I think, I mean, personally, I don't think there's any chance in hell that marketing gets to Dirk because again, that's just such a, such a freaking high threshold. But I do think there's a lot of what he does that gets a, like, I think, okay, I should say it like this. A lot of what he does gets fully valued and partly overvalued just based on the over overall shooting numbers. But I do think the diversity of his shooting sometimes gets undervalued. Yeah. The fact that like, He's just very different, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, the fact that he averaged, like, 19 points a game last year on, like, a 55% true shooting percentage as a 21-year-old is pretty insane, first and foremost. Uh, Especially given just what his skill set is. Second, I think that where the difference is between him and Dirk is that you could throw Dirk the ball and he could create a shot. Lowry, Right, efficiently. Like, hyper-efficiently. Lowry can't really do that. Lowry, you have to run him off of a screen, hope he gets loose, and then you can like use Lowry as a ridiculous part of your offense. Like he's not a guy that you can throw the ball to in the mid post, not a guy that you can just give the ball to on the perimeter and run like a pick and roll with a seven footer. Like Carl Towns can kind of do that now, which is just like insane. Uh Lowry <laughs> is not that guy. Yeah, I think the shot making for me, again, is something that if he really hits that to his fullest, that's where his upside is going to be realized. Like, I'm not even saying, again, let's put Dirk out of the conversation for now. Let's talk about maybe Porzingis, the last time Porzingis was healthy. Remember the beginning of how he started his last healthy season and like that unreal shot making he showed like contested shots in like the mid post. If Lowry can kind of approximate that level of shooting, um, because again, at seven foot. He's really hard to guard, um, especially if he plays the five, but that gets into the defensive concerns. But I think overall, when you're looking at his upside, I think it's tied to not just his catch-and-shoot shooting, because we know that's going to be good. He's going to be able to pick and pop at a high level. Those are two supremely elite skills. But it's more about can he create as a shot maker. We look at his synergy. I mean, I'm not saying this is all telling or anything, but very poor as an isolation score, not great as a post-up guy shooting over the top. I think his off-screen is going to pick up, obviously. But you're looking for those self-creation avenues if he's really going to meet that ceiling. So, yeah, I totally agree with all of that. I also think that this year with the Bulls, he's going to be in a much better position than he's been throughout the first two years of his career because Tomas Sadoransky is really good at just like reversing the ball, and they use Lowry a lot in spot-up situations as well. Really good at reversing the ball, putting the ball directly in a shooter's pocket and allowing him to go up very quickly. I think that's really going to help him. I think having like a creator... Like a Kobe White is something that they haven't really had with him as well. Uh, maybe Kobe can be someone that you know gets him some more shots. I just think there's more. There are more guys out there that can get Lowry shots now than what he's had in the past in Chicago. And 
I feel like we're going to see it. Like, I feel like Lowry's going to average 20 points a game this year. Like, that's my, that's like not like a crazy prediction given that he averaged 19 last year, but <laughs> they have more pieces than they've had in recent past. So like you would think that with Otto Porter coming in and Thaddeus Young coming in and like they're just mouths to feed now in a way that there weren't. I think Lowry is still the guy that's going to keep getting fed at a ridiculously high level. You're not going to see his usage drop off. I think you're actually going to see him just become the force that he has potential to be. Like if you told me Lowry Marketing made the all-star game this year in the East, I would not be totally shocked. I wouldn't be totally shocked either, just because, again, if you can score in the NBA, that's always going to be valued, especially for all-star teams and whatnot. I do think that you're going to see, we've seen coordination from Lowry as a ball handler, like attacking closeouts, a little bit more passing acumen. I think that's what we're going to see more this year, because the Bulls can actually play legitimately five-out basketball. I'm pretty, we talked about Wendell Carter on the last podcast as far as his shooting acumen, but they can put lineups on the floor with Otto Porter, Sadoransky, Carter, Lowry, and Levine, and they can really shoot at all five positions. In theory, and I think that will open up the lane for Lowry to utilize his dribble drive game a little bit more as well. So I am pretty high on him there. I think he can attack a closeout. He's coordinated enough to do that. He's actually a little bit underrated as a vertical athlete. Like when he can load up in space, like he can get he can play above the rim with ease. Some big dunks. He's not gonna like pick and roll dive like into a lob catch. But I think you're gonna see a little bit more of his handling ability and that ability in bigger spaces because the Bulls. I mean, playing Dunn for example at point guard, you can always sag off him and kind of shade towards Lowry. Now you can't really yeah. do that as much anymore in those Sadoransky lineups long term I think this is the biggest question for Lowry is he a four or is he a five and ultimately it's going to come down to the defense like do you see a circumstance where Lowry can defend fives competently I don't think so I don't think he really has that natural physicality to bang with fives like that in the regular season and I don't think he has the rim protection or necessarily the team defense high IQ awareness to really be that backline defensive quarterback on a great team I I think he's more of a four that way not necessarily like you have to hide him like I think he's okay in space honestly he doesn't he's not bad at moving his feet that's probably his best defensive quality in my opinion but as a team defender and as a backline defender and as a primary rim protector I have some pretty stark reservations there so I guess that what it ultimately comes down to for me then is Lowry is, and I agree with everything you just said. Like, I think that I might say he's slightly worse than you would in space, but uh, he's not a disaster in space by any stretch. His feet actually yeah. move okay in terms of fluidity for a seven footer, especially. Um, is he a guy that you can build a title contender around? Or is he a guy Chicago should use as trade fodder long-term? I think that's like kind of ultimately the biggest question that Chicago is going to have to answer with Lowry, especially given the fact that they have selected Wendell Carter and have a guy that can be like an all-around center. Yeah. I don't really, like, I think they should continue down the road that they are for now um, and just see where this goes. They obviously can create a lot of really interesting front court lineups now where like you can play Thaddeus Young at the four, Lowry at the five, Otto Porter at the three. You could play uh, Otto Porter at the four with one of the centers and play like a backcourt of Zach Levine, Thomas Sadoransky, and one of the point guards. Uh, Like they have a lot of different options now, and I think that they should explore as many options as they can this year uh, to see as much as anything, what are the ways that you can succeed defensively with Lowry in the lineup? And and what what is the best way to go about that long term? I agree. And I think they can kind of, 
you know, experiment with different pick and roll coverages, maybe use Lowry in space some. I mean, of course, you can't always control that because the offense controls what big is playing in space and use Wendell Moore as a backline guy, mix and match that. I think to answer your question, I would side with the latter there. And that being that I think that he's probably going to have more value in a trade just because of his contract. Again, this is someone who, if he was on a reasonable, if he made like $15 million a year, I'd probably be in, frankly. But that's not going to happen. No chance. We're talking about, you just said that like he's going to be a 20-point-per-game scorer. He's arguably the best big-man shooter in basketball. Like That's not going to get undervalued. There's no way in hell that's getting undervalued. So I think you have to factor that in and say, can this guy be a core... Even in the modern NBA, it's harder to build three team star or three star teams as far as team building, even though it's easier when you get down as far as like 25% max guys, for example. But I think you have to factor it into the calculus and say, can you create a formidable enough defense with him as one of your three highest paid players to say one of your three max players to really eventually win a championship? I think that's a legitimate question. Yeah. And I'm just not sure what you do with him in the front court, to be honest, defensively. Like, what is the best player? Like, if you could pick any player in the NBA, just the entire league is open to you to pair with Lowry Markin defensively. That would be the absolute best case scenario for him. Who would you pick? I think it's hard. Like, cause I don't know if I would pick a rim protector type or if I would pick like more of a, you know, do everything like forward type. I would probably lean. I mean, ideally somebody can do both. Like I would probably, the two guys that stand out to me are Jaron Jackson and Zion Williamson, eventually Zion Williamson, not right now now because he's not there defensively but that kind of rangy guy who has a ton of backline speed who can cover distances and like the, the high level team defenders like if you want to pick on Lowry in space like I don't, again we've had this conversation with Carter how well is Lowry going to hold up against the best pull up shooters in the league right maybe you just have him run them off right. the three point line and then you rely on your team defense right and I think that's where I, I would definitely have someone who's a dynamic backline defender but also you want that space versatility as well clearly yeah, like I think that the number one guy for me would be Anthony Davis right now. Um, okay. In terms of like longer term guys, yeah, I like I like Zion a little bit more than I like Jaron. I, I guess like that's also a real question. Like, do you think Lowry is better as a weak side rim protector or as a primary rim protector? Because like he, I don't think he's particularly good at either. But like that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, you have to like fit him into a role in some construct, right? Yeah, and I think you also have to keep in mind the offensive end of the floor and optimizing him there. You want centers to guard him, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe like that's totally something agree. you have to factor in. So like that's how you get the most value out of Lowry is if you can play him as the offensive center and somehow insulate him. And that's a very tough challenge, I think, as far as team building. Yeah, no, I agree. He's one of those guys that I think is going to be exceptionally difficult for Chicago to kind of figure out long term. Agree. Jamal Murray, number 15 here. I wonder if people yell at me for having him at 15. What do you think? Like, I think that his stature around the league is a bit higher than this, having him at 15 on this list, right? I think so. Um, For me, I would maybe even trend a little bit lower, and I'm more conservative. I always have been on Jamal Murray, but I think in the league, as far as scoring, shooting ability, his age, his work ethic, um, you can make an argument for higher as well. I I think for me, especially the contract factors in pretty significantly here. Of course, he already has the maximum contract extension. That's a tougher sell for me. So it's really interesting just in terms of projecting long-term value. (laughs) Value, I'm sorry, for Jamal Murray. (laughs) Because he is now locked into a five-year deal where he will be paired with Nikola Jokic long-term. If he was not locked into such a deal and there was more uncertainty about where his long-term future would lie, I would probably be more on your side because I do wonder if you made Jamal the focal point of the offense, like a traditional point guard offense or point guard-led offense is. 
I do wonder if he would be nearly as successful as he is in Denver because he's not quite as good at get separ- getting separation as what you would hope for one of these lead guards. He is a high-level shooter to be certain, but he's also not a guy that creates a ton of high-level looks for his teammates either. So I'm not saying he'd be like a backup point guard by any stretch. He is certainly, I would say, one of the top 20 point guards already in the NBA. Would you agree with that? I think so. I think I, I think he's yeah. an average starter caliber in isolation right. and in a vacuum probably, yeah. Right, but he is certainly elevated by playing with Nikola Jokic. So how do you go about trying to project his value? Do you just do it in the situation that he's been handed? Or do you try and do it in a vacuum? I I think that that is the trickiest part of trying to rank Jamal Murray on a list like this. I 100% agree with that. And I think we can't, sometimes you can't take things completely in a vacuum because some of the best players in the league are optimized in certain settings. Even Draymond Green, for example, isn't going to be as good in a different setting. So you have to figure factor in fit. And Denver is for sure doing that, paying him this contract, in my opinion. They're saying, I mean, they're betting on him improving as well, but they're also saying like he's a tailor-made fit because he can play off the ball at a high level. Always been really good shooting off screens. That that was his main thing in college. And he can play off Jokic. I mean, there's no question there. But in a vacuum, yeah, I think that you'd see the weaknesses more as far as his decision-making has never been. He's always been up and down there and make some wild decisions with the ball he's not dynamic getting to the rim in a primary setting that's as far as, far as creating separation there and his defense his defense is a concern man like it was a big issue as far as off the ball especially against the spurs for example they really picked on him with like Derek white attacking closeouts his angles and stuff like that so i, I really do think he's optimizing the system because when you have an off ball guard who's a good cutter and a, a good off movement shooter Jokic is always going to find them I, I just don't know again i still think you might be paying too much for the player that jamal murray is The defense is so interesting to me because I thought he was a nightmare defender at Kentucky. Like, I just did not think he was very good. Agreed. And then the first year he was in Denver, I actually thought, like, he was... I don't know if I'd go as far as, like, league average, but he was okay on defense. Like, he fought through screens. He was mostly in the right position. But it's just, like, kind of slowly but surely sloped downward since then. I wonder why that is. I can't really put my finger on it. It could be, like, a circumstance where Denver over each of the last two years has really switched what defenses they run. Like they were a lot more aggressive in ball screen coverages this year. Like they would actually allow Nikola Jokic to go out and like kind of slide with ball handlers at times for three slides and then try and recover back whenever Murray had recovered. So I wonder if it's just like a lack of familiarity with things maybe, but like that wouldn't explain why he was good as a rookie. I I can't (laughs) really put my finger on what it is with Jamal Murray, but you're right in that it has gotten worse to the point where it is genuinely concerning when he's on the floor defensively now. I think the scheme is really fascinating as far as you noted the aggressive coverages. What they're trying to do essentially is take away Jokic's burden in space as far as like a dropper as a rim protector and trying to get him to to almost trap, not fully, but kind of encourage that extra pass and rely on your team defense. Because you have someone like Millsap on the back line who is an incredible team defender. So that makes sense because you're trying to minimize Jokic's weaknesses there. I think that's probably straining Murray more because I, I think he has to rotate more and then he has to rotate back. He's really bad at angles and recoveries. That's something that he just got destroyed. Again, he got destroyed against the Spurs here just because he would take bad angles. He'd give up you know, closeout attacks. I think that probably amplified his weaknesses because he's not like the best as far as his feet. I just think always thought that his compete level was really good like he competes yeah. hard he plays hard and i think that compensates for some but it can't compensate for everything yeah no i totally agree with that um i mean like we've kind of we haven't really put him in context with the rest of the players though on this list like in discussing him because he is just such a difficult player to evaluate in a vacuum but like 
placing him next to someone like John Collins, for instance, who is 14, right? And we'll talk about John in a second here. But like Jamal Murray has been a player who was the second leading scorer, like the second most offense, important offensive player uh, on a team that just won a playoff series, right? There's credit that should be given for that. Whereas like John Collins hasn't been anywhere near a good team yet. But I, I just don't really know how to contextualize those two in comparison with one another because they are two drastically flawed players in the way that they operate within team structures, I feel like. Yeah, and I think it's even more fascinating at 13 with Russell, who we'll get to. I think those guys, for me, would be pretty similar. I mean, I think yeah. in Denver, you could argue that Jamal's perhaps better optimized, but I think in Golden State, you can argue that Russell's even more optimized, playing off of Steph and playing off of Clay eventually, if that materializes. Because I think he's always he, he's been okay at multiple ball handler systems. Like, People forget, like, D'Angelo played as basically a combo guard in college at Ohio State. Like, he doesn't need the ball all the time. He can Man. shoot off the catch as well. So, Sh- shout I, out Shannon I, Scott. <laughs> there you go. That's the kind of analysis you get here. But uh, <laughs> I agree with your sentiment about Jamal. I, I think it's really fascinating. And it, it's really fascinating to consider team context, too. Because, I mean, you have Jamal who's playing with a top 10 player in the NBA, right? Collins doesn't have that luxury. Like, Trey can eventually get there, in my opinion. But right. Jokic is already there. Like, Jokic is entrenched as a top 10 guy. That's going to benefit Murray a lot more than some of these players on this list. Right. So, John Collins at 14. And I think that. Maybe when we get to Russell, I'll compare and contrast why I have D'Angelo Russell a little bit higher than Jamal Murray. Sure. Um, John Collins at 14. John Collins averaged 19.5 points and 9.8 rebounds last year. Uh, I feel like nobody knows that. <laughs> like, does it, I, watched, I, feel, I watched like 80 Hawks games last year, so I, I'm very well familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, like if you go from December onward last year, so, you know, not an insignificant sample, John Collins... John Collins averaged 20 and 10 while shooting 55% from the field. His numbers and his production, you can't contest them. I mean, what he does well, he does incredibly well. Like, he is one of the best pick-and-roll dive guys in the league. Incredible body control as a leaper. He can finish, like, non-dunks in the air. And he's great there. He's optimized by Trey as a passer. He can also pick and pop. He's improved yeah. his spa- his spacing ability as well, which really made him a son of a bitch to guard in a lot of situations. We'll get to some of the weaknesses, but I just think conce- conceptually, he's evolved into one of the best play finishing bigs in the NBA. Yeah, John Collins shot 35% from three last year on 2.6 attempts per game. Like, again, one of those things that I feel like very few people would actually know is that John Collins started shooting threes at like a reasonable clip last year. Um, Collins on offense, like you said, he's just such an exceptional play finisher because he has a very unique combination of exceptionally high motor. Like he is a monster offensive rebounder. He's a monster roller. Uh, he consistently puts pressure on the defense because he rolls hard to the basket every time. And additionally, he is an elite level athlete. Like he is a leaper uh, at 240 pounds. Like he can really sky. Like the fact that he doesn't have wild length actually just kind of doesn't matter just because he can really jump just straight up from a standstill. Like his standing vert is so high that uh, it's just really, really hard for defenses to or defenders to get that high and contest him uh, whenever he's coming downhill at you in a ball screen scenario. 
Oh, yeah. And I think the explosion, and even more for me, it's the body control. It's someone who has yeah. elite level body and control. And touch. In the air. Like, it, it's body yeah. control plus touch around the basket. Yep. They're not all dunks. Like, he can finish non dunks. I mean, the dunks are incredibly impressive. Just like you said, his catch radius for his length is elite. Like, he can almost get to any single ball thrown around the basket, and that's valuable. No question. The. Questions here are more defensively. Uh, what position does he play defensively? Can he get to a reasonable level defensively? Uh, especially with the fact that his primary pick and roll partner defensively will be Trey Young, uh, who has his own issues on defense. Um, what what are your that. thoughts on John Collins defensively? Because I like that he plays hard, but I, I just don't know that the like feel for where he needs to be is consistently there. So can I make one more point on offense really quick? Mm -hmm. I think from a self-creation standpoint, he's not very good. And that's something that we need to dive into just very briefly as far as he's an outstanding play finisher. But as far as play creator, I think he's an underrated passer at times, but he's not very good in isolation. He doesn't play in that very often. He's only 3 of 21 last year. He's not someone who, even like Bagley, for example, can face up, take a couple dribbles, and shoot over the top of you. Like, Collins isn't really that level of guy. He's more of a pick-and-roll guy. Like that's, I think that's just worth noting because you're not going to throw Collins the ball and say, get a shot. That self-creation aspect, like, we'll get to Jaron Jackson, for example, who's actually, I think a lot of people would think that John Collins is a much better individual shot creator but jaron jackson's a much better shot creator <laughs> and i think that's going to kind of surprise some people when we get to some of the numbers and i try to walk through that but i just think it's worth noting that again elite john collins is elite at what he does well i just think there are some gaps there that probably work against popular narrative so here, here's what i would say comparing the two because i think john collins is just a much better offensive player than jaron jackson right now um there's a diff we're talking about on ball shot creation when you say that like being able to get the ball make a move, create a shot. Yes. I actually think what John Collins does exceptionally well is he creates shots without having the ball in his hand. Uh, his ability to offensive rebound, he averaged almost four offensive rebounds a night last year because he just reacts quicker to the ball than everyone and uh, is just such a ridiculous leaper that, that he creates so many more shot opportunities for his teammates than what you would think. The fact that he rolls hard every single time to the basket creates shots, especially when paired with Trey Young. Uh, and ultimately, Jaron Jackson, while he is a better on-ball shot creator than John Collins, I do wonder if when we're talking about the center position and where the center position is going in today's NBA, if it's not more valuable to do what John Collins does where he just like creates offense through sheer force of will versus Jaron Jackson, who creates offense through he's some, he's like a really good handle for a big man and can do some things. But like, I wouldn't say that I trust Jaron Jackson to create plays at the end of shot clocks yet. You know what I mean? Like I, I think that having the quote unquote low usage in terms of like ball handling ability, offensive creator for a center is probably more valuable unless you're talking about like a Carl Towns, Lowry Markinen type of creator at the center position, which I, I just don't think Jaron is there yet. I mean, I, I for one, I, just to restate, I think that Jaron's a better shot creator. I think offensively, when you talk about efficiency and you talk about play finishing, I think Collins is clearly a much better lob threat and offensive rebounder. He's a, he's a better finisher on the basket. Like there's no question. I don't think there's a question about that right now. I'm talking about just pure creation handle. I think 
Jaron's a better shooter than Collins is. And I think that's something that there might be some disagreement on, but Jaron was a better three-point shooter last year. I think he's got better touch. He's got better range. Like, he can already comfortably shoot above the break. We saw that even in summer league. So I think when you talk about... I think Jaron can fill that low. I know we're talking too much about Jaron here, but I think he can show... He can prove to be able to, to play that lower usage role where he's taking a lot of above-the-break threes and then putting the ball on the floor... I, he's just a really good ball handler in space. So I like that skill set more, actually, than I do a, a pick-and-roll dive guy. I, I know John's can, Collins can shoot as well, but I think Jaron, his upside as a shot maker is clearly much higher, and I think that value of being able to space at volume plus put the ball on the floor and attack closeouts playing the five is just incredibly valuable. Right, and, like, no one's comparing Jaron to John Collins here. Like, I mean, we yep. are, but, like, in terms of, like, <laughs> I think we would much rather have Jaron just because of the defensive side of the ball. Like, that's where Jaron yes. provides the most value. But in terms of offense, like, the one thing that Jaron doesn't really do a great job of yet is put pressure on the rim rolling to the basket. Like, he's never really done that. Like, he's been a good pick-and-pop guy, but, like, when he goes toward the basket, like, he's not some wild leaper. Like, he's super no. long and sometimes can elevate over guys, but, like, John Collins puts a lot more pressure on defenses in terms of, like, horizontal gravity. Oh, no question. Or vertical I mean, gravity, definitely- sorry. Again, he's like the, he's the better lob catching threat. No, no question. Nobody's contesting that. I would just take what Jared but, does. But I guess like my question is like, isn't that a method of creating shots? It's not Again, an on-ball would... method of creating shots. But it like he John Collins creates probably as many shots off the ball as any big man in the NBA right now. It's fair to argue. I think we have to be careful of how we define creating a shot. Like, right. are you creating an opportunity or you can, because like John Collins wouldn't be as effective without Trey Young creating those shots, right? Like he's the one who's getting Collins the basketball. Like you are dependent if you're John Collins. You have to have somebody who can get you the ball, but he deserves credit for creating those opportunities. It, it's just a kind of true. a fine line there. An example of that, John Collins averaged 15.7 points per 36 minutes last year versus 23.4 points per 36 minutes this year. I think John certainly got better from year one to year yes. two, but I think a big part of it was Trey Young for sure. But again, I think it's hard to divorce the situation that John Collins is in versus like who he is. Right. Like John is uh, a perfect fit for Trey Young. He's a perfect fit for what Atlanta is building. Up. Offensively, 100% agree. Yeah. I, I think they both help each other. I'm, I'm not trying to belittle Collins' ability on the offensive end. Like he, what he does, he's special at legitimately as like a, a pick and dive guy, as a dual threat option and pick and roll. Like he's there. I, I have no qualms with him. I, I think we can both agree that the most pressing issues for him and this team as far as roster construction is on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. So I mentioned that I feel like he's not in the right spot enough. And I feel like just being six foot ten with a seven foot wingspan often leads to him uh, not being as effective as a rim protector as what Atlanta is probably going to need long term from a five man. Uh, what are your concerns? What do you think of him away from the ball? Because I'm also not a huge fan of that either. I don't like his reactiveness. I mean, he's fast as hell, but you see him react a, a touch slow at times. That kind of negates his speed. And I think, again, when you don't have anticipation and they don't have length, I don't know how your margin for error is a lot smaller. It's kind of like Brandon Clark, for example, who, I mean, Collins has better length, clearly. But it's like you have to be in the right places if you don't have like a 7-5 wingspan. You know what I mean? And I, I don't think like Collins is doing that enough. And I think his defense regressed a little bit this year. I think people, Hawks fans are more optimistic after his rookie year. We'll kind of see where that goes. But I think it's a pretty hard sell for me for him as like a primary rim protector as far as in drop coverage. Like, I don't think he's big enough. I, I just don't think he's going to be enough of an obstacle there. And then as a backline defender, as a team defender, I just haven't seen it consistently from him. A very real question for you. 
Would Brandon Clark be on your top 25 list? Oh, man. No, I don't think I could quite go there yet. I would have him as an honorable mention. I, I think that I'm just that high on him, but I, I can understand people not having it. <laughs> well, that's a shame because this is the only year he's eligible for it. <laughs> oh, I see how you set that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do we have anything else we want to talk about with John Collins? Like, do we think he's long for Atlanta? I feel like he is just because of the offensive fit and he's probably going to get maxed. Like if John Collins averaged 22 and 12 this year, would you be totally shocked? Uh, no, I, I think the production, it, it's pretty historic. I mean, like his, his points, rebounds, his efficiency, he's going to get paid. And I think he's going to get the max. And my issues with him aren't as him as a player. I think you can find team contexts that better hide his limitations especially defensively i don't think the hawks have that kind of personnel and that's where i worry about him with trey young if you're building a tandem offensively i totally get it the pick and roll combination with those two is legitimately special but i think it comes at a severe cost on the other side of the ball let's go to d'angelo russell at number 13 russell i think is the only player on this list to have made an all-star game which is fascinating in and of itself just because he played in the east and was an injury replacement last year but the only guy here that has made an all-star game nonetheless i wonder what the upside is beyond what he's shown just because like d'angelo is not some wild athlete or anything like I, i don't know i don't know how he can get better technically as a ball handler you know what i mean like he's already so ridiculously good as a technical ball handler and he's already a really good shooter like i i don't know where he gets a ton better at this stage but where he's at right now is obviously really good he averaged 21 points and seven assists last year um he is also a guy though where like context is very important with him just because like Brooklyn had him with the ball in hand a crazy amount last year just because uh Karis LeVert got hurt and he was their very clear number one option yep it is like a situation where his usage was ridiculously high he's 31.9 usage guy last year but He's never had it, and he's also never had a true shooting percentage over his peak last year of 53.3, which was about 2% below league average. There is just something to be said, though, I think, for being such a ridiculous shot creator and being uh, as capable as he is uh, of taking a team to like the sixth seed. You know what I mean? Like being able to get a team that far offensively. Really fascinating case here. Very divisive player and prospects. I think how he gets better, I think he's going to get better efficiency-wise playing Golden State. It's almost impossible not to when you play next to Draymond and Steph's gravity. He's going to get easier shots. It's not like he has to initiate every time in 1-5. He's going to be able to play off the ball, you know, do more off the catch, do more off closeouts. It's not, the issue for me isn't like necessarily efficiency. I think you can see that you know, take a turn for the better. It's more individually, how much better does he get as a self-creator at times? And I think he has to get better at drawing fouls. Who knows if he'll actually do that? He doesn't get to the rim at a high level on the ball. Again, that's going to be somewhat regressed a little bit in far, as far as importance playing on the Warriors. But he's going to have to be, I think if he's really going to reach this crazy ceiling, it's going to have to come with pull-up shooting. He was already 81st percentile last year. I think he could tr- do well with trading some of these long twos for a higher volume of threes there. And if he gets to, to be like a 95th percentile pull-up shooter, he's just knocked down guy from three. I think that's where you see the value spike the most. I don't. He's never going to be the kind of athlete that's going to blow by you and get to the rim. He's not very good on switches against a lot of more mobile defenders. I think he's always going to struggle there. So for me, it comes down to shot making. And I think some of it is at least environment. And that's going to be better playing ne- like next to better players on the Warriors. So over the last two years, 
uh, he's been a pretty consistent 55 effective field goal percentage guy as a catch and shoot player. I would imagine a majority of those. Like, I know that it says like it's 50-50 in terms of guarded, unguarded on synergy, but like I always find those numbers to be a little bit wonky whenever I go through and watch the highlights, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like he's probably just kind of that guy as a catch and shoot guy. Like, I, I don't know if he's going to be like a 40% three-point shooter as a catch-and-shoot player ever like we just haven't we haven't seen that from him you know what I mean I think that's fair I'm, I'm curious to see I haven't gone through with like the distance measurements on NBA.com as far as like wide open shots but I would imagine he's gonna get a lot more wide open shots playing for the Warriors maybe yeah maybe it, just like in terms of his pull-up game and stuff like that like his overall shot distribution yes he will get more open shots but like It'll probably just be because he takes a higher percentage of his shots off the catch versus yes. uh, like him being someone who actually improves his percentage off the catch because he's more open. Like I think that most of his shots in Brooklyn off the catch were pretty open from just like anecdotally watching like 25 Nets games last year. Um, yeah. It's more just like maybe he changes the shot output and distribution to make it that he's like a 55% true shooting percentage guy. But like, I don't think you're ever going to talk about a guy here that is like a 60% true shooting percentage guy with like 20 points a game volume, you know? Yeah. I think he could maybe get there in the Warriors. If he, again, giving him more. He, he just doesn't, he, he doesn't cut well enough off ball and he doesn't get to the rim think, well enough. Like the, I, I, I don't really I think see we that. Saw- I will say, I think we saw more of the cutting at lower levels. Like, I think he can move okay without the ball. He's going to get better opportunities there. I'm almost 100% sure. And Draymond's incredible at picking out cutters. I think we might see a little bit more there. And I, again, I don't think we're going to see as much of him on the ball as far as getting to the rim in that fashion. So I, if you just kind of shift around his distribution, I think you can you know, create a case that he will have a higher true shooting. I, I don't know about 60. I, I don't know about specifics. I just think he's going to be more efficient generally because you scale back his on-ball usage where incredibly, like, look at what he shot on runners. It's pretty remarkable. 86 percentile and 171 attempts. I would, yeah. that's going to, I mean, that's going to devalue a lot, not as far as points per possession, but as far as distribution, like he's not going to have to do as much on the ball. I just think when you traded enough of these harder attempts especially with him in like isolation or creating one-on-one this is not his strength as far as like getting to the rim i think he's gonna be more efficient it's just a question of like how valuable is that necessarily to what degree does it get to d'angelo russell has attempted in the last two years about 50 shots off of cuts in like wow. what like 140 games so much yeah so like, i've just never seen him showcase that skill even at lower like even at lower levels like he was even when he was the guy that played off ball at Ohio State it was more like he was on the wing and then would be like an advantage scorer where uh he'd pump fake off the catch and then drive to the basket right like it or like knock down shots off the catch right like it was not I, I just don't I, I don't remember him ever being much of a cutter I will say I just pulled up his points per possession at Ohio State and you are right he was eight of 16 on cuts so maybe this is a bit fanciful as far as his cutting awareness and whatnot. But I do think if we're going to see it, it's going to be in this setting. Right. Yeah. I mean, like he's another guy for sure where I am as interested in him as I am in any other player in the league, like him and Lonzo for sure are on this list of guys that I just want to see where it goes from here. Like, I I just don't know where it's going to go. And I am 
incredibly fascinated to find out. Yeah, I mean, the same as far as his stylistic fit in that system. I do think it's going to go better than some people have said. I think the yeah, I the agree. whole he needs the he needs the whole ball narrative. Like, I don't think he needs the ball to be successful. I think he can play off of the ball at the Warriors. It just comes down to a question of defense with him and Steph and downsizing without Clay. All of those questions. We even haven't considered the fact that you know we, we talked about this a little bit in the podcast we did after that trade. But did the Warriors make this trade as an asset grab, or they really want right. him long term as far as team building? So there's a lot of questions to answer here. Right. Uh, have you and I talked about the over under for the Warriors yet in terms of win loss? I, I don't even know what the number is, but I bet over. <laughs> it was like forty eight and a half or something. Like it was. It was like in the or like maybe even like forty five and a half at one point. Oh, like it, it was low. Like I, I think that like you can make a real case that if Clay comes back by the All Star break, like easy fifty win team. I mean, even without Clay, I again when you put Stefan and Dre on the floor, I know you can't run them. Like th- you have to rest them at times. You have to load manage a little bit. But when you put those guys on the floor, I'm never betting against them. I'm just not going to do it. So to bet on that over under, where Cole and I are both very very high on <laughs> the Golden State Warriors and their over. Uh, go to betonline.ag. Baseball season's in full swing. Basketball season, you can bet on win-losses. But the best way to place a wager, be it on baseball, uh, be it on basketball win totals for the full season, uh, it's with BetOnline. It's never been easier. Uh, and you've never had better odds than you get at betonline.ag this week. Uh, I probably won't be watching much sports, but I probably will place a bet on the Golden State Warriors. Uh, the NFL preseason is coming up. You got to bet the unders in the preseason. This is a Robbie Callen special. Shout out, Robbie Callen. Uh, to celebrate another season kickoff, betonline.ag and CLNS Media are giving you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Head over to betonline.ag. AG or use your mobile device to join today and use that promo code CLNS50 to receive your welcome bonus. Don't sit on the sidelines this coming football season, this coming basketball season, or in the middle of this baseball season. Uh, get into all the action with betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Uh, look, a minimum deposit of $55 is required, $55 uh, to qualify for the bonus. Please see BetOnline's general rules for additional terms and conditions regarding bonuses. But uh, yeah, we're, we're big fans of BetOnline over here at the Game Theory Podcast. Uh, another thing that we are fans of is Manscaped. Look, Manscaped, it, Manscaped is just a fantastic product because while it is the number one in men's below-the-belt grooming, uh, Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools uh, that I think go best with your face, to be honest. They have these great clipper settings that really can allow you to get the length that you're looking for in terms of your beard. You can also use it for the intended purpose, which, uh, as Manscaped so eloquently puts it, is for the family jewels. Uh, but look, Manscaped, it, it's a, they've totally redesigned the electric trimmer. Uh, their lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin safe technology. So this trimmer doesn't, uh, nick, it doesn't snag. It's just a, it's a terrific product. Uh, accidents are a thing of the past. Uh, we are just a big, big fan of Manscaped and you can go to Manscaped, uh, dot com and get 20% off and free shipping with the code theory. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code theory to get that 20% off. Uh, Cole, let's go on ahead and move on to number 12. 
Miles Turner was another one of those guys that is pretty tough to kind of figure out where to place here. I had him like as high as ninth at one point, uh, as low as like 16th. I settled at 12th just because while he is an exceptional defender, I really do wonder if he's ever going to be anything of an offensive creator, anything of a real role threat toward the basket. I do think he is just like an exceptional defender who can also space the floor as a shooter. I think it kind of comes down to how much the Pacers volume three him utilize him that way as like a high volume above the break shooter and really just unleash him in that regard and let him take a ton of threes because he's not someone who's going to put the ball on the floor. We talked about his short roll ability, not a great passer, even though he's improved a little bit there, but compared game i don't know if he's efficient enough as a shooter there to do that but he can get you a shot i think that's important to say is like he can shoot over the top of guys in the post he has that kind of classic turnaround jump shot important to note but i think his upside offensively comes in in regards to extended beyond nba3 at volume so you do mention the fact that he can be like a mid post creator and I do get that, but I don't think I would ever want that to be anything resembling a significant part of my offense. Um, I I just don't think that he's ever going to have the level of efficiency that is necessary to be that kind of guy. Now, I do think that you're right. His ability to knock down threes, I think, is pretty real. Uh, I do think he's going to be able to be a player who can knock down the 38% from three that he did this year. Like, I like the mechanics. Uh, He's strong. He has a good base. Like, I I think all of that is going to really work itself out in time. But, like, I I know that he shot 47% from that 10 to 16-foot range where a lot of those mid-post shots take place. I just don't really see him as being someone that I want to trust in that role consistently. Like maybe, maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe yeah, I'd... maybe I'm just like missing missing the boat on this. But like that, that's just like up until this season, there has just not been much in the way of evidence that he can be like a super high level shooter from that range. Yeah, and I'm not saying you should run your offense through him. I think offense overall is like order of operations. You're trying to get good stuff first. But having a guy like Turner who can shoot in those situations, I think, is important on like switches, for example. You can't just put a smaller guy on him and expect him not to do anything with it. You know what I mean? So as like a last is more of like a secondary or like tertiary source of offense. I think that's what I'm talking about. It's just important to have some kind of self-creation ability or ability to like make shots from some areas of the floor. Sure. If you're just a pure dive guy and you can't do anything outside of the rim area, that really hurts your team. I had no idea, honestly, that Turner shot almost 39 percent from three last year. I thought it was more like 36, which is more career. That's pretty incredible stuff. I mean, if you can amp up that volume, that's where I think he becomes a valuable offensive player, especially in terms of gravity as well. And I'm not saying he's not like a valuable offensive player already. I think he is just valuable just by the nature of his ability to space the floor and the fact that he shoots 70% of the rim. Uh, He's not like putting immense pressure on the rim or anything as a roller, but you can still like dump him the ball if he's open just in the like dumper spot or the... uh, just that little like dump off spot, the short corner, and he'll be able to knock down that shot at the basket with ease. Uh, There is a value to having a guy who can knock down shots from distance and efficiently score inside and knock down shots like semi-efficiently from the mid-range shooting over defenses. But there's like, to me, like I'm just never going to want him creating a shot either. And like you said, he's not some like high level passer. Again, though, we're at the point now where he doesn't need to be that. He is so good defensively that it kind of like it's all gravy at this point offensively. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially with the already found already established foundation to shoot. I think you just need those two things. 
and to, to have value. I mean, obviously, he had standalone, like, premier defensive value, but if you can just shoot the ball offensively, that's enough for me, at least. I value that space creation or that creation, how you warp the floor as a spacer more than even applying vertical, you know, rim attack pressure if you're just a lob guy. But defensively, I mean, we knew about the rim protection. I mean, everybody knew about that. The rebounding has always been kind of suspect. He's never been a great rebounder, even in college. I think, at least if I remember correctly, maybe I'm misremembering that. But at least as a pro, not a high-level rebounder. But where he's improved the most is in space defensively. That's something that I really noticed last year. And there were some people that were ranking Miles as like a top 10 guy, I feel like, a week or two into the season last year. I was like, that's kind of crazy. I think we even talked about that. And then you watch him more in space defensively, like, oh, shit. Like, he actually has made progression there as far as, like, loosening his hips a little bit. His movement skills were much better. I thought he was really good defensively in that Boston series as far as being able to move in space in that scheme and kind of, like, cut off Kyrie at times even. And if he's going to be able to play space defense, we're talking about, again, one of those multi-level, you know, dynamic rim-protecting centers. And I think that's there's a ton of value in that. Yeah, like, he finished fifth in Defensive Player of the Year voting last year. I think that's about right. Like, I don't think that's just a, you know, vote based off of his block totals. I think he is a ridiculously good defender. He is so, so good at being in the right position now in terms of pick and roll ball coverage, in terms of just being in position to contest shots at the basket. He uh, contested seven shots a game at the basket last year, which, as I mentioned on the last show, that's like a really, really high level number. And he did it at a 55% clip, which is really, really good. He is just, he's morphed into a guy that has turned into one of the biggest bargains in terms of players that have been extended in the NBA. He is on a flat $18 million a year contract for four more years. That is, that is one of the best contracts in the NBA, I think, for a non-rookie scale player. It's tremendous value. It ended up being one of those deals where you look back and say, you got it. I mean, it was it was clear value. I mean, at the time, it seemed like it was. It, I think we were OK with it at the time. It's just like this is pretty. I good. really liked it. Some people did not like it. I thought it was fine. But like in retrospect, it looks great. And I will say that Turner, as far as a rim protector, like a pure rim protector, we're not talking about someone like Gobert or someone like that. Like his thing has always been like Turner's always been a great shot blocker. But I think he's made improvements as actually being like a, a good rim protector, not gambling as much on the ball, not just chasing blocks as much being more disciplined and we have to give credit to indiana as far as their defensive development having guys like thaddeus young for example like bogdanovich i thought played good, pretty good defense on that team you kind of optimized them there so i think we have to give some credit to nate mcmillan and their developmental staff especially like loosening turner's hips and stuff they had a plan for him and i think in and now we're starting to see that kind of pay off whereas i thought he was pretty stiff before and that's kind of my big issue with him as a prospect was i just didn't like the way he moved that well but i think they've really worked on that they had a plan and it's been successful yeah, and I think that it's interesting to note that in regard to their most recent draft pick, Goja Bichadze, uh oh boy, he is a monster shot blocker. If they can approximate Miles Turner's value uh, with Goja, like it's going to be pretty dangerous to play Indiana inside because uh, you're going to really, really struggle to score around the basket for 48 minutes. It's not just going to be a... Uh, you know, 30 minutes that Miles Turner's on the floor, you can't score at the basket. It's going to be the entire game if they can uh, work the wonders they have with Turner on Batadze. Yeah, I I have nothing further to add. Number 11, Marvin Bagley. So having Bagley ahead of Turner is something I thought a lot about. I guess that the way that I thought about it in general was, do you think that 
the Kings would trade Marvin Bagley for Miles Turner? No. Do you think the Pacers would trade Miles Turner for Marvin Bagley? No. I think that they, in reality, they probably would not. But if I was them, I probably would. Because if I was Indiana, I would want the potential for the upside that Bagley possesses. Just because it's harder for them, I think, to find the kind of star power. Just because like one fewer avenue is open to them just because free agents don't really go to the Pacers, right? So like if I if I was them, like I would probably sh- very strongly consider and probably do a Marvin Bagley for Miles Turner trade. I think it's defensible. It just comes down to where you come down on, on Bagley's upside. And I think like he's never going to be as good defensively as Turner is. I'm pretty confident saying that. And right. Turner's, a, a, I think Turner, you can argue, is going to be a better pure shooter. Like Turner was a better college shooter. He's got better touch than Bagley, in my opinion. So it comes down to Bagley scoring. That's what you're buying is his self-creation and how much you value that. I think what also adds to the argument in favor of Turner here is Turner's contract pretty clearly. Second value contract. Like, but Bagley's maxed out already. Like there's no surplus value like you're not getting Bagley for 18 million a year no but you're getting Turner for 76 million a year or 70 what in 1872 over the course of those four years and you're getting Bagley for what uh let's say three years probably 29 plus a max year so you're getting four years 60 let's call it by the time he hits uh, rookies or by the time he hits free agency. So you're getting a better deal with Bagley. So it's basically which one do you think is going to be better by the end of that contract? Well, I think if you're looking at current impact, like you're getting, I think Turner is going to be better than Bagley, at least for the next two years, pretty much at minimum. And especially okay. if you're trying to complete the playoffs right now, which is what they're trying to do. So by the time sure. Bagley is arguably better than Turner, he's <clears> going to be paid much more. If that makes sense. I think you can go either way. Like obviously with Bagley's rookie deal, he's going to be more cost effective right now, but for what they want as a team and what they're trying to accomplish, I, I think that Turner is going to be the better player for the foreseeable future. It just comes down to, do you believe in Bagley's ultimate ceiling by, by the time of which is going to happen, he's going to be, being paid the maximum contract. Yeah, I'm less convinced that Turner is better than Bagley uh, in, let's say, 2020-2021. Okay. I I think, like, Bagley has a chance to get exponentially better, especially if you listen to people um, who were at, like, USA Basketball uh, during this training camp. Like, he was apparently ridiculously good at this training camp from what I was told. Yeah, no, I, there's people that really love Bagley. So I, I know you've always been on the more optimistic optimistic end with him, and there, there are definitely a lot of supporters there. So Bagley averaged 15 points and 7.5 rebounds a game last year. Uh, 21.2 points, 10.8 rebounds per 36 minutes while shooting 50% from the field. That is not normal production from a... You know, ostensibly a guy who was a teenager for a large portion of the year last year. Where are your overall concerns? Because like, when I look at Marvin Bagley, I think he's going to be a guy that can create his own offense, that can score efficiently, uh, that is going to be one of the best role threats in the entire league. He's going to be a monster transition threat and who I think has a chance to not be a disaster defensively. Uh, Just due to his overall athleticism, you can probably play him as a weak side rim protector who can defend out on the perimeter due to the fact that he's just an outrageous quick twitch athlete. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And just one thing I want to say really quick about just general counting stats and like pace adjusted and stuff is like listen to people like Ben Taylor who have a really good sense historically of numbers in like different eras of basketball and trying Mm -hmm. to 
normalize those numbers. I think you see this with a lot of rookies, right? They're, they're unfathomable numbers that a lot of these rookies are putting up, these younger players. And I think a lot of that has to do with pace and circumstance. So you have to look at the overall context of the numbers. And not, not just talking to you. I'm talking like literally everybody. I, I see that all, all the time. You see these cutoff lists where it's like, these are the only players under 23 or something and right. doing this. And there's like two guys, right? But I think there's a reason for that, right? The, 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 the league is at an all-time high as far as pace. The style of play is very conducive to you know, stat generation. So I, I just think we have to be a little bit careful with those numbers, especially as, as we put it in context historically. So here's what I will tell you. We are not at an all-time high in pace. Uh, that, Like the 19, uh, what? what? What is it? It's like the 1970s, right? Like they're going to be way higher in terms of pace, if I remember correctly. I'm talking like, about like, like recent history, though, like 90s basketball. You know what I mean? Right. From 73, 74 to 1991 all the way through the nba was played at a higher pace than it was last season now you're right in terms of the 90s like you know the pace slowed down we had a uh year where it was like 90 in terms of pace like we had multiple years where uh the average was like 90 possessions a game we're up to 97 possessions a game which is a drastically larger amount of possessions but like in terms of like the overall tenor of the league long term we're basically like in the middle of where the league has been like throughout the course of its history now right uh from 74 to 91 we were at a lower pace from 92 to 2017 we are at a higher pace so maybe we're at like a slightly higher pace but like we're within the like middle part of the graph in terms of pace like long term like it's i think the bigger part where and like look i'm like someone who will do this sometimes the bigger thing where people get fucked up doing those like oh this person scored 20 points and seven rebounds and five assists and is the only person to do that in 25 years is college where pace of play is so drastically different from team to team. Yeah, that's fair. And I think also the real changes too. Just just the overall environment that favors offensive basketball. I think the <clears> scoring like not really even like the the rookies playing a, a, a like a historic amount. Like you got you see guys like Tim Duncan for example played like 38 minutes game as a rookie. So it's not like that. It's sure. more just the conducive style to putting up numbers. I feel like sometimes we put too much stock into the counting stats where I think we should like keep in mind certain factors that are going into that and try to contextualize a little bit as far as impact goes. Sure. And I think that's reasonable. I think a good example of that is that this past year was the highest effective field goal percentage the league has ever had. Uh, I think it was like 52% or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like 50, 53, something like that. It was, it was really high. And uh, I think that what you see is that coaches are, better at getting players shots now in part because the game has changed the floor is better spaced because teams utilize the threat of the three-point shot better so i do i do understand that point and i think it's realistic but like marvin bagley averaging 21 points and 11 rebounds per 36 minutes while doing it on like some slightly above average efficiency as a rookie that's 19 years old that's not normal for the last like five or six years where the uh, tenor of the league has not changed, really. Yeah, I think it's fair. I'm not trying to belittle Bagley's production. I mean, clearly, it's very, very good. It's very high level, even in recent history. I, I just think sometimes, again, you have to view 
where the league is as far as optimizing offensive talent right now with the space, right. with the pace, and, and just with the rule changes as far as can't hand check all of that. It's just very. This is not just a Bagley point. I just wanted to kind of build that in because I felt like here was kind of an opportune time to do that, but. As far as my biggest concerns with Bagley, I, I, again, it always starts with defense for me with Bix. That's always going to be that way. And like we experience some of the issues we have with other guys on this list. Like we talk about John Collins, which is what's his idea defensive role? Larry Markkinen. Where do you come down on that with Bagley? So I think Bagley's defensive ceiling is much higher than those guys because I think he's just a much, much more of a quick twitch athlete than both of those guys. Like John Collins is. It's hard to compare Bagley with Collins because I think that Collins... So Collins used to be like kind of overweight, right? Like he used to be like one of those big big bodied, like 260 pound guys and has lost weight and added explosiveness. I think that you see that in the way that he moves laterally and in like his twitch laterally. Um, he's more of a rebounder who just seems to innately understand where the ball is going to go as well as one who has a tremendous amount of force off the ground when jumping from a standstill. Whereas Bagley is just like a 99th percentile athlete. I think it is size. Like he is a total freak show in terms of the way that he elevates in terms of the way that he moves laterally in terms of his reactivity uh, to things happening to him on the floor in terms of his body control. Like that's, that's kind of the difference for me compared to those guys. And I think that whenever you have those guys that have a lot more margin of error in terms of athleticism, it's a lot easier for them to get to a point defensively where they are not a, uh, not a hole. They are in fact, potentially like a positive, like especially in today's playoff atmosphere. If you could tell me like the Kings can throw Marvin Bagley at the five and switch all actions. Like that's something that I don't really ever see Lowry Markinen or John Collins being able to do. But I do think that Marvin Bagley has the potential to do that. I think he has the potential to do that. I'm not sure if I really buy it as far as him it being a high level. Like, can he guard these pull-up guys? Like, his length isn't great. I don't think his technique, his technique sure. kind of on the ball isn't very good. Like, he crosses his feet now. If he can, if he can improve his technical defense to where his slides are better, he mirrors better. I, I don't think he does that exceedingly well either. But he does have the movement skills. I mean, clearly he has the speed. He has the lateral quickness if he gets that technique down. And someone who has a great work ethic, you're looking at, that's kind of where I come down on him is he's another one was high character high work work ethic kids so he could improve at rates that i wouldn't expect before the draft like i don't think his defensive instincts are good uh, he, they weren't at duke i've never seen him really as a backline defender he's obviously can jump so that gives him some margin of error because he's an incredible leaper but as far as reacting to the ball like on drives even in usa like the scrimmage i think it was against when they played spain or whatnot maybe the scrimmage before and you saw him or i think it was the inner inner scrimmage when he was guarding kyle kuzma and you saw like the closeout angles were bad like his overall defense to me has never really stood out, but he's a work in progress. Sure. So maybe he improves at a, at a better rate than I expect. Yeah, I, th I think there is like a real chance that he improves pretty drastically defensively because like he is like, you know, we talk about like Brandon Clark is like an outlier athlete, right? Yeah. He's probably a better athlete than Brandon Clark, right? Like where Brandon gets him is Brandon is just much better in terms of like basketball IQ, right? But Brandon's also like, what, three years older than he is? Three years older than Marvin, right? Yeah, I, I just, that's a very interesting question. I think as a functional athlete, I think Brandon has Bagley in certain areas. I mean, you have to consider IQ too because you it's, unlock athleticism with your IQ. It's funny because, like, I think that in terms of their offensive creation on ball, they're actually very similar because they both do that same thing in the post where 
they just elevate over everyone and like it looks like they're looking down at the rim and finish right but marvin to me marvin is just like they're probably the same level athlete but marvin is three inches bigger and is four inches in terms of length or five inches in terms of length and that kind of stuff really adds up in the nba Oh, it definitely does, and especially on offense. Like, this is kind of why I like Bagley is, like, he can get his own offense. Like, we have to contrast him with someone. Like, this is a good ex- exercise with John Collins. Like, Bagley's a much better isolation player. So he wasn't very good at it in summer league. Like, he was very, you know, left-hand dominant. But the fact that he can just elevate over the top of fours when he's playing the four spot, he can just go right over the top of the guys. You know what I mean? Like, he can get his own shot that way. And I think he has enough handling ability. We've, just, we've seen some pull-up jump shooting ability. I'm not sure if I buy that at a high level, but he's capable. Definitely within his range of outcomes he can shoot that shot and create for himself. So we're not, we're not talking about necessarily. I don't think he's as good as a pick and roll guy as John Collins. I don't think he's as good of a screener. It's like flipping his hips as quickly. Like he's a little bit worse than you might expect in that area. But I think he makes up for it with the fact that he can create his own shot. If uh, if we were doing one of those like crazy prediction columns that like Matthew Barry <laughs> does every year for college or for fantasy football, right, where he says like you heard me or whatever. And like predict something that he thinks is within like the top percent, 10 percentile range of outcomes or whatever. Do you know what the column is I'm talking about? Uh, I think I I used to read it. Yeah. (laughs) So if I was doing something like that, and I might do something like that this year. um, Do that. Yeah, that that would be a fun thing to do. Uh, I might tell Sergio that I'm going to do this. Uh, I think I would say Marvin Bagley is going to average 20 points and nine rebounds a game this year. I honestly, I think he could do it. Frankly, like I think the system as well, getting up to tempo, the, the Kings play at a faster pace with De'Aaron pushing the ball. And the fact they have Deadman there now, who is and with a guy, uh, Luke Walton joining the fold, like yes. they're going to continue to run in the same way. That's really the most interesting thing for me is the fit with Deadman. I think you saw the Kings. I mean, you still hear Vladi. I think Zach Lowe mentioned this. Like he still talks about Bagley as a three. I think that's a tremendous mistake. Um, but playing him at the four next to Deadman, I really like that. Unlocking his space finishing ability. If you could have like a stretch five, I think that's where yep. you want Bagley. Because again, I don't. Some people view Bagley as a defensive five. Maybe he gets there. I, I don't see it right now. I think you want to insulate him more. You play him next to Deadman and Barnes, where Barnes and Deadman have like the strength that he doesn't, and you can yes. just allow Bagley to wreak havoc athletically, um, both defensively and like on the offensive glass, and is like a pick and roll diver and everything. Yeah, that's the that's what I would do if I was picking a starting lineup for the uh, Sacramento Kings this year. I would say like Fox, Heald, uh, Barnes, Bagley, and Dwayne Deadman, and then bring 100%. Uh, Bogdanovich off the bench. Yeah, and I think that's what they'll likely do. I think that's what they should do. Last question on Bagley for me. Where do you come down in his shooting long term? Oh, boy. That is... I wanted to ask you that. God damn it. I hate you. You put that... <laughs> you, put this, you put this on me. You put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Um, <laughs> I think he's going to be fine off the catch at some point. Um, we started to see that a little bit at Duke as a freshman. Uh, last season, he took 97 catch-and-shoot shots, made them at a 52 effective field goal percentage. Yeah, I think he's going to be fine, especially from the corners. Uh, 
you give him an open shot, I think he's going to knock it down, especially by the time he's like 24 or 25. Like, I think he's really going to be a shooter that has potential to bring it above the break. Yeah, I think that's fair. Honestly, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic on his shooting, not necessarily being high level as far as volume and like really good efficiency. But he's already proven to be capable enough. His foundation, his touch. I don't think his touch is like Aiton. I mean, it's not Aiton's touch, but it's like pretty good. It's, it's serviceable. It's good enough to where you project it long term with his mechanics. I think he's going to be okay above the break and okay on catch and shoots. I don't really see that elite level as far as realizable upside and being like a crazy good shooter, but I think he'll be capable. Yeah, if you told me he was like a 36% three-point shooter on like three to four attempts a game, I think that that's probably where I'd settle. Okay. Yeah, I, I might be a little bit more skeptical, but it's absolutely possible. Like, that, I don't know if I'd bet on it, but it's definitely within his range of outcomes. Yeah, and like all of those being catch-and-shoot threes, basically. Maybe like Fair. three quarters of them being catch-and-shoot threes. I do think there's some off-the-dribble shooting upside with him, but more in the mid-range. I think that you can yeah. face up and take like a one-two dribble pull-up, and that's going to be something that's another one of those swing skills as far as degree of success. Like if he, I know he can do it situationally, but if he can get really good at it, I think that's also an avenue for him to self-create. Additionally, being able to short roll, take two dribbles and take a floater. We started to see that occasionally last year, like not yep. often, but maybe like once every two or three games he would do it. Um, if he can bring that to his game, I think that's going to be a critical avenue as well. Absolutely. Uh, all right, let's go to number 10, which is Jaron Jackson Jr. These two are a little bit closer than they were last year. I uh, Let's see, I Jaron at... I have it up right here. I Jaron at number 13, Marvin Bagley at number 18. Uh, now I have them 10 and 11. Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, terrific shooter we feel confident of, terrific defender as a rim protector, and terrific defender in space, we feel like, right? I would say he's very good in space. I wouldn't quite give him terrific. And I know that kind of goes against consensus a little bit. I'm a huge Jaron fan, but I think his hip turns at times. He doesn't move like someone like Garnett. He can look a little bit slow in the hips sure. at times. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. He's not like some wild athlete. And I think that's actually yes. really important to bring up in the context of uh, his biggest weakness right now. The one that like concerns me as much as anything else with him is defensive rebound. Um, sure. He really just struggles to elevate and end possessions a lot of the time. Yes, and he struggles with contact balance, I think, overall. Yeah. When you bump him on the glass, I don't know. He's going to have to add core strength. He's not someone where he's going to get super bulky. At least you don't want him to because you want him to maintain that mobility and that multi-level defense. So, yeah, the anchoring and getting leverage on the glass, not something he was good at even at Michigan State. Like The defensive rebounding is a concern. I think you're going to have to ultimately scheme for that. I think you're going to have to get surrounding personnel, like wing rebounders. Eventually, Jaron's going to play the five in the playoffs. He might always, maybe not always but he's gonna play the four a lot in the regular season but he's definitely like when you start scaling down and you start getting if he ever gets this far as far as memphis as a team but if you start getting deeper into the playoffs you want him at the five so i will say this i am much less interested in him as a four long term even in the uh regular season because as an offensive player he doesn't like i said earlier he doesn't bring like a crazy amount of gravity as a roller um he is like a good pick and pop big man um which i think you get the most marginal value out of especially given the fact that he can knock down shots above the break uh yeah i, I would want him as like a pick and roll five man who can take his man away from the basket because like if you play him at the four i think that fours in the nba are probably strong enough through their core but also quick enough to take away his ability to create 
shots with the ball in his hand uh, in terms of like being able to like drive going forward. Now, it's not to say that like he can't play the four. I think that like who he's going to be paired with presumably long-term in our situation. Like we both really think Brandon Clark is a terrific partner with Jaron Jackson. Um, yes. He's, I think he's going to be more of a five long-term, but I, I will say like, if he is playing the four in the regular season consistently, that's not something I, that I think that actually hurts his value. Oh, it definitely hurts his value, especially offensively. You want to optimize his shooting gravity at the five. There's no question that he's better suited as an offensive five. I think I'm a little higher on his ability to play the four, though, offensively. I do think that he's going to be able to score. Um, it's like that same concept with a Shea or with a Siakam. His ability to dribble and then extend, his touch is excellent. It, that's something that was really underrated in the process. Is like he, he, His left hand is fantastic. Like You just can't get to these shots, and he's really, really coordinated as a ball handler. So when he gets a size advantage, like let's say a, a traditional for that's even strong at like six nine like he just extends over the top of these guys and he can finish with touch so on closeout attacks i think he's going to be better than he than he gets credit for right now so while it's not optimal I'm, i totally agree with you i want him t- i want him at the five even in, if you don't pick and pop him like if you run a pick and roll with like clark and morant you still have jaron spacing and drawing that yeah. opposing team's rim protector out that's where his value is going to be offensively but i do think he can function at the four if you want to keep physical blows off his body during the regular season and play him next to a Valanciunas. I don't think that's optimal, but I think it actually could be doable. So the next thing that's worth bringing up in terms of Jaron is just generally, he is a long-term potential NBA defensive player of the year. Uh, Even throwing away the four and the five man, right? Like, you know, is he a four? Is he a five man? Like that conversation isn't something that like I'm, real interested in to be honest even though we just had it like (laughs) the thing that i'm just most interested in is the fact that memphis is now with brandon clark like in a very unique situation to where they can optimize jaron jackson defensively and feel like they can probably let him roam a little bit more and make a ridiculous impact defensively and that's my ultimate role for him is like just just like the the chaos creator backline defender where you just put him on the like this is my idea like in the playoffs if you put him against the opposing team's worst offensive player and you just let him just absolutely ruin offenses he's going to be able to do that like he has the ability to do that he has the instincts like his instincts on the defensive end as a rim protector as like a rotational guy his reactivity is I've never seen anything like it at his age. And I think that's just worth mentioning is like, it's just such high level stuff from such a young player. This is one of the youngest players in his class. And he already he has still that 19 game. years old. It's wild. It, some of the stuff he can do already, how he processes the game. Like we don't see it as much as a passer. He's not a very good passer, but as far as defensive ability, this is why I don't care so much about the four or five split when, when it comes to Jaron. Cause eventually he's going to be able to play the five. Like he can protect the rim. He's going to be a defensive five in certain circumstances. It's just how he gets to that point as far as uses. But I, I totally agree. I think he has the, I value team defense and kind of that guy who just absolutely fucks up an opposing team's offense. There are very few guys that can really do that at a high level. And I think Jaron can be that guy. Well, here's the thing, too. He's already 240 pounds. Like, it's not a circumstance where you have to put weight on him. It's just that you have to redistribute the strength on his body, basically. Um, Memphis will be able to do that. I have very few doubts about that. Great pick-and-roll partner for John Morant. Uh, You know, just has potential to be an absolute monster two-way player in the NBA. Um, 
He can be a guy. Well, I guess here I'll ask you this question, being the resident Jaron Jackson <laughs> like uh, fan here. What do you think his ceiling looks like, like uh, on offense and on defense? I think his absolute ceiling on offense is a guy who takes volume threes above the break, has a great handle that can really just put a ton of pressure at the point of attack on slower fives. You have to close out on him. That just unlocks his game. And I think his ultimate ceiling, he can actually shot make a little bit off the dribble. Like we saw that pull up against LeBron. He has conducive mechanics for that in bigger spaces. Like I was a little bit more worried. He doesn't have that traditional post up kind of turnaround jumper because of his release point. Very awkward shot. But actually, when you pair that off the dribble, like with how quick it is and his touch, I actually think they're shot making upside at the five, which is something that, frankly, there aren't. I don't know how many guys in the league that are center size have shot making ability. It's very hard to do that off the dribble. And if we're talking ceiling, his ball handling coordination, he's an elite ball handler for his size. I, I think he's elite. I think he's better than, you know, Bagley. Bagley's faster, but as far as ball handling coordination, like Jaron can give you like a double cross in space and like go between his legs and dip low with the ball. You don't see that from 6'11 guys with 7'5 wingspans. I, I think the offensive upside as a scorer is higher than he gets credit for. <laughs> I think that's about all I've got on Jaron personally. Uh, in terms of numbers, like if you told me he averaged like 20 points, 8 rebounds, and like one defensive player of the year in a season, I would not be surprised. Yeah, that's definitely fair. I think that even the scoring upside is a little bit higher than that. And again, I know yeah. I'm, I have Jaron, just for context, we'll get this eventually, but Jaron's number three on my overall board. So like, this is a guy that I'm just going all the way in on. And I know that's not the consensus opinion. I, I'm just all in on this guy. So my next guy here is Jason Tatum. I would imagine you would have Jaron considerably higher than Jason, right? Yeah, I have Tatum in its range, and I don't think there's like an argument for it. I do have Jaron higher, but I, Tatum's great. Yeah, so... Uh, Jason, it felt like the narrative this year is that Jason took a step back. Do you agree with that narrative? And just generally, what do you think of Jason now going forward? I don't think he took a step back. I just don't think he vaulted forward to the extent that expectation levels were of him based on his rookie season, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, you look at the numbers across the board. He averaged 16 points, six rebounds, two assists, shot a more reasonable 38% from three. Like Jason Tatum was never a guy that was going to shoot 43% from three throughout the course of his (laughs) career. Um, He shot exceptionally well to start his rookie season. And I think it created a sense that he is a better shooter than what he is. Um, 37, 38%, I think is like right in line with what he'll be, especially as he starts adding more pull up stuff to his game. Ultimately, I do think that that is the thing that concerned me most is that it felt like he got away from what he was good at as a rookie and leaned more into the kind of like shitty habits, like taking two dribble pull up 20 footers uh, that concerned us about him so drastically coming into uh, his freshman year at Duke. Like we've seen Jason Tatum. I mean, Jason Tatum has been a known quantity since he was a freshman in high school. Like the, the level of Jason has gone from being a guy that like was super high level as a freshman in high school to, you know, people kind of reverted against him coming into college because of the concerns about his uh, ability to shoot and particularly his shot distribution because he was mostly a mid-range killer. Then his first year, he started to take a ton more threes and was like a really good three-point shooter. And now we're back to the point where we question it all. So like, I wonder if Jason might just be one of those like roller coaster guys where, you know, opinions change on him drastically being in Boston. And that's like just, you know, pressure cooker of an environment probably will help that along. But like, 
Jason is, at the end of the day, like a guy who I think is going to average 25 points a game at some point in the NBA. It's just whether or not he can do it efficiently enough to be like a guy averaging 25 points per game on a team that's a top three seed in his conference. Yeah, that's the ultimate, just cutting through all the bullshit, that's the ultimate question. I I very much agree with that. And I will say, especially earlier in his second season, it looked like his everything he was doing seemed rehearsed. Like it was like, I just worked with Drew Hanlon. I'm going to show you all these individual moves I've been working on in the construct of five on five basketball. And it just wasn't as synergistic. Like what made him special Which, as a rookie, by the was, way, one of the things that you were worried about, cause you were a little bit lower on Jason. One of the things that people that were lower on Jason in general coming out was that roboticism, that lack of fluidity, the fact that he seemed to be uh, someone that had predetermined reads in terms of what he was going to do. Yeah, it was that in I just didn't think he was the caliber of athlete to be like this dynamic wing scorer. Like I think he can score, obviously, but like you said, it's about efficiency. Like this has never been someone who's a good finisher. We saw him in isolation last year. This has been popularly stated by now, but 17th percentile on 162 possessions. I just don't think that's his game. I think his game is more of like a, a guy who's just ultra efficient as not necessarily an advantage scorer because he can give you more than that. Like he can get his own shot, but you don't want him to do it every single time. You don't want to like up his usage to the point where he's just like this Kawhi Leonard. He's not going to be Kawhi Leonard. Like, he's not that athletic. Like It's just not going to happen. He's not that strong. He's just not that caliber of athlete. So I think when you put him in the right role, this is a guy who scales probably easier than almost anybody on this list. Like I had a, We'll get to this with De'Aaron Fox, but Jason Tatum to me is like the safest player to value in that class. As far as I know what I'm getting with him, if I put him in the right role, he can do the off-movement shooting. He's a great catch-and-shoot guy. You can attack closeouts. You can run some offense through him at times, but not someone who's ever been a creator for others at a high level. And he's not the caliber of athlete where he's going to take these dynamic wing score or wing stoppers off the dribble, score at the rim consistently. He's going to have to be a crazy shot maker to do that. Yeah, I don't think he's going to get quite there. Uh, as like a ridiculous shot maker. But I do think he is going to get to the point where he is, uh, where a coach such as Brad Stevens will utilize him as someone who gets enough opportunities and is an advantage scorer to bring his efficiency up just enough. Because like part of why Kawhi Leonard ends up being efficient is that not all of Kawhi Leonard's shots are these, you know, pull up jumpers right? Kawhi Leonard on pull-up jumpers, I would imagine, is probably not like, you know, at 55% effective field goal percentage, right? Like, I'm going to pull it up now, but it's all about finding the right balance of getting guys easy shots in addition to when defenses tighten up and you have to find a way to create a shot, uh, using that person's insane innate skills and allowing him to create a shot. So Kawhi Leonard, a guy that we consider to be almost at the pinnacle of pull-up shooting, he's a 46.7 effective field goal percentage guy as a pull-up shooter last year. Like, it is exceptionally hard to be an efficient pull-up shooter. Uh, Yep. Jason Tatum, look, man, you need to, like, understand that the best way for you to be effective is by limiting that to only when it's necessary as opposed to uh, doing it when you feel like doing it. Yeah, and I think with Kawhi, like in the playoffs, he took 176 shots off the dribble, almost 50% effective field goal percentage. And he's like, literally, Kawhi is a historic playoff scorer. Like we're talking about elite of the elite. Like he can get his shot basically whenever he wants because he's so strong. His body control and his balance is like the one of the best of all time as far as core strength to balance combination. That's just a very hard level to get to. Like Durant, we talk about these elite mid-range shooters that can just get shots like Chris Paul 
CJ McCollum's on the lesser scale, but like those shot creators, it's so hard to be that good. And I just Tatum has, I guess, the shot inputs to enter that potentially, but it's such a high-level outcome where, again, we're not dealing with someone who's a dynamic athlete as far as first step, as far as core strength. He's not as strong as someone like Kawhi Leonard. He doesn't have the release point of a Kevin Durant. I just think if you contextualize him, like if he has a pull-up shooting season like Paul George last year, which, frankly, Paul George was incredible last year as a pull-up shooter, it wouldn't stun me, but even that is just such a high bar to reach. When you start talking about the elite players in the league, just the degree of what they're good at. It's just so hard to reach that. Yeah, no, it really is. But like, look, at some point, someone in the NBA is going to reach it, right? Like, just be <laughs> it due to exceptional skill development, right? Uh, yep. This happens throughout every cycle of NBA history. And I would argue that Jason is probably closer to reaching that than... Certainly any other wing creator we've talked about thus far, at least, right? I'm with you on that. Again, I, I have no objection to Tatum. I think he pro- he has a legitimate argument for that. It's just, again, the the level you have to get to, and we'll talk about this with De'Aaron Fox as well, is in a different role. It's just incredible. Like Again, Paul George last year, 394 attempts off the dribble, 47.2 effective field goal percentage. It's just very hard to get that efficient, especially when you're the primary cog of an offense. And that's another discussion worth having is Kawhi did it as the guy Tatum is performed best when he's a part of an offense right but Kawhi was terrific in San Antonio when he was 23 years old as a part of the offense Jason Tatum is terrific as a part of the offense at 21 years old I mean like with Jason the big question with so many of these guys but obviously with Jason too being as skinny as he is so far um, being like 210 pounds, how much weight does he put on? How much strength does he put on? Because you and I are big on the idea of one of the big, maybe the word is equalizers, maybe the word is marginal inefficiencies, the phrase is marginal inefficiencies. Uh, in the NBA now, it's just physical strength. Being physically strong gives you such an easier amount of time of creating your own shot, uh, period, full stop. Like there's just not anything to add to that statement. Uh, It's just so important to being that level of scorer that I think it just goes so drastically underrated all the time. And I totally agree with that. And I think that Tatum, even at his size, is not... In certain areas, he doesn't play to that size. And you see that primarily as a finisher. He gets bumped off his spots a little bit easier than you would expect from a player that's 6'8 and weighs as much as he does. So that's just an avenue where I don't think he's going to be Kawhi there, who just absolutely runs through everyone. This is, again, we're talking about ceiling-ceiling outcome. Like, I think Jason Tatum is very, very good, and he's going to be... I think he can be one of the three best players on a title team. That's how good I think he is. It's If we're talking just general ceiling, he's going to have to answer some questions, because we haven't really talked about the passing too much, but not someone who he's not an initiator oh, no. of an offense right he's a, he's a bad wing. passer right now I yes think. like i mean even if he's not bad maybe he's below average for a wing he's not terrible he can make some decisions but he's not someone who you're going to run your offense through he's not luca for example you know what i mean so that's the di- differentiator at least for me here who is a better passer him or jalen brown i would take tatum i i, I just don't trust brown's decision making i've seen some flashes from tatum I, I would roll him i agree with you i think it's definitely jason tatum but yeah I don't think that, like, there are more than one tier in terms of difference, in terms of passing ability. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, Jason's just not there yet as a passer, and that's going to ultimately be the biggest thing that, along with his ability to consistently, honestly, like, I think getting to the basket and finishing at the basket is going to be a big thing for him, too. He really needs to be able to 
absorb contact and get those length extension finishes and uh, take advantage of his skill set in the way that I think he's capable of to be efficient in the at the NBA level. But again, a lot of that comes back to strength and being able to absorb contact. And that's not something he's done at like an exceptionally high, high level yet. Uh, Cole, that's nine through 16. Number nine, Jason Tatum. Number 10, Jaron Jackson Jr. Number 11, Marvin Bagley. Number 12, Miles Turner. Number 13, D'Angelo Russell. Number 14, John Collins. Number 15, Jamal Murray. Number 16, Lowry Markinen. Offensively heavy group this time, in addition to having like two elite high-level potential defensive player of the year candidates here. Yeah, two defensive bigs. I mean, obviously, we have varying opinions on offensive upside for those bigs. But yeah, for the most part, I have some lead guards here who take some off the table defensively. And that's probably a reason they're at this spot as far as creating their own shot efficiently, getting to the rim athletically. And of course, you know, creating for others at a high level, pull up shooting. It's kind of an interesting group. I I think summing it up as more offensive oriented with some defense for the bigs is astute. Well, Cole, we're at the end of the podcast. You know what that means. Uh, It is time to take a look at the reviews that we've been left here. Um, Jason Caffey left on August 10th here. Uh, I love this podcast for expanding my basketball knowledge, yet I experience a Ferris wheel of emotion pretty much every episode. At some point, I always feel exceptionally educated on small details of the game, while only minutes later feeling like I'm massively uneducated in areas of the game, such as when Cole analyzes how a prospect's gallbladder leads to functional torso athleticism, which (laughs) leads to the shot diversity best suited for a five-out offense, or that I'm a horrible person that needs to fix my life, such as when Dieter talks about how Midwesterners only like sports so they can crush beers with their friends. I do admit Dieter is pretty much dead on with that. Pre-game tailgates always beat the actual game, and the Cole is a genius. Marquette education shining through. Sam's incredible in that he has his ear in pretty much every basketball circle on the planet, likely even down to my early morning open gyms. Yes, I know that I'm a very lazy rebounder, but every terrible open gym needs a corner three camper that doesn't set as much as a single <laughs> toe inside the arc. All that being said, it's the best basketball podcast, and it's not particularly close. Jason, you and Zach Harper would be best friends because Zach is also out here not stepping a single toe inside that three-point line and pickup man um obviously a, an incredible review again we we appreciate these reviews keep leaving them if you keep leaving them and they're as good yes. as that one I mean shit there is a strong chance we will read it on the podcast uh Cole do you have anything that you want to plug here no plugs. I will just say that was an incredible review, and I can't attest to that Midwest kind of beer drinking at sporting events. Just one in particular. If you get a chance to go to a Notre Dame football game, it is an otherworldly experience. My roommate at law school uh, went to Notre Dame undergrad, and that is just you, – you can never replicate going to a Notre Dame football game. Shit, this is a real question going through my mind right now. Like, you know, <laughs> as we've been recording this podcast, I've been drinking White Claw. Like, are people judging me for drinking White Claw? <laughs> now like I, I am betraying my midwestern sensibilities by moving on to white claw is this a thing that's happening like is this something i should be concerned about let's uh let's get some reviews to that Let, let's see the, the listeners what they think about your uh new white claw habits here yeah to be clear i had never drank white claw since or before this weekend it is i'm a fan <laughs> i will just say that it is uh it is terrific it is lower calorie than beer it is better tasting than beer uh, not that I don't enjoy a good cold beer, but like, you know, raspberry flavor, lime flavor, grapefruit <laughs> flavor, like, what are you going to pick here? Come on, guys. Um, it, it's 
it's just delightful in every way as someone who is also an aficionado of seltzer water. Are you a seltzer water guy, Cole? I definitely am. All of that stuff. LaCroix, like every, everything straight seltzer water. I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I am a huge LaCroix guy. Like I go through uh, a ton of it. Like White Claw, LaCroix, hit up the podcast. Please, please <laughs> sponsor the podcast for the love of God. Uh, I spend enough money on you guys. Just, you know, send over some <laughs> cases. Send them on over. Come on. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Android, whatever podcasting app that you use. I'm sure that we're up there. We'll be back later uh, this week, early next week, with the final series, the top eight players, 23 and under in the NBA. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.